Welcome to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Today we continue our teaching sessions with Chad Bird. Glad that you're back with us. Yesterday we spent the, the latter half of our time together talking about exile and return, big E exodus, little E exoduses, exodi. And I don't want to leave that quite yet because there's so much more material that we can talk about. What I want to do is kind of go from the, the broader theme of exile and return and focus in on the exodus itself. In particular, some of the events associated with Egypt, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, water from the rock, manna, things of that nature. And see, first of all, kind of what's going on theologically. We can, we can read what's going on in the narrative itself, but kind of step back from that and see what's happening theologically as, for instance, God sends the plagues upon Egypt. And then take that understanding of what's happening with all these various elements of the Exodus and see how that surfaces in the New Testament and see how Jesus himself or Paul or Peter or whoever it might be, how they make use of that in order to help us to better understand what the ministry of Christ was all about. So let's start with the plagues and then the Passover, which of course is connected with with the 10th plague. Of course, the plagues themselves are, when you're just kind of reading the story, what's God doing with each of these? If you had to kind of summarize the impact of each of these plagues, you know, whether it's the Nile turning into blood or the frogs or the, the darkness or the hail coming or any of these various elements of, of plagedom, <laughs> how, how would you summarize all of these? What's, what's God basically doing? Okay. Hey, I'm God. That, that's, that's a great way of, of, of summarizing it. Because Remember the initial conversation that Moses and Aaron have with, with Pharaoh? And they, they come and say, hey, uh, God, Yahweh, wants us to, to go into the wilderness to worship. How does, how does Pharaoh respond to that? He's like, sure, yeah, that's fine. Y'all, you take your, take your little worship vacation and come back, and then we can get back to, get back to making bricks. <laughs> what does he say? What does he say in, in particular with reference to Yahweh? Who is he? Yeah. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yahweh? Never heard of him. Now, if, if you know a little bit about the Egyptian theology, who did Pharaoh understand himself to be and who did the Egyptians understand Pharaoh to be? God. Yeah, he's like the incarnation of one of the many gods of Egypt. So here is Pharaoh, the God, supposedly, saying, hmm, never heard of that God. I mean, I'm a God myself, and I, since I've never heard of this God that you're referring to as Yahweh, then he must not really be that significant. So the answer is no, not going to happen. And so they begin to have this, this series of plagues, all of which then are designed to bring home the fact that God is God, Yahweh is God. And then, also if you know a little bit about uh, Egyptian theology, you you realize that various elements of creation, such as the Nile or the heavens, were understood to be emblematic of various of the Egyptian deities. 
So really what you're seeing happen throughout the course of the ten plagues is a, uh, a theomachy, a, a, a God war that's taking place. Except it's very one-sided because God is winning all the battles. Yahweh is winning all the battles. It's not as if, you know, Yahweh wins the first two rounds and he gets yeah, knocked down the third, but he gets right back up. No, every single time, it's, like, it's just him. Everybody else just gets, gets defeated. So that's definitely happening. You've got a theomachy going on here. You've got this, this battle of the gods where Yahweh is demonstrating he's God, the Egyptian gods are nothing. There's also something else going on as well. Think about all of these various things that are happening. Well, of course, they all involve matters of creation, right? So it begins with the Nile. The Nile turns to blood. And then you have the frogs. And frogs leave what? Frogs leave the water and they end up everywhere else, right? They're, they're in the, the bedroom of the, of the king. <laughs> they're, they're all over the place. They're where they shouldn't be. See that? So there's a, there's a dissociation from where they belong to where they don't belong. And then you also have, you have things in creation doing the exact opposite of what they should do. So if it's daytime, you should be able to look up and see the sun. You should be able to look up and see light. And yet what do you have? You have three days of darkness. So another thing that's happening here is that God is undoing creation. We talked about that yesterday in connection with Isaiah 34. Remember the phrase in Hebrew that you, you can use as a, as a parent now to describe your child's room? Tohu vavohu. <laughs> Formlessness and void that Isaiah, that Isaiah uses, as does Jeremiah. Well, what's happening in the land of Egypt is kind of a, a tohu vavohu. God is reversing everything. He's bringing it to kind of back to that Genesis 1 phase where you have chaos. So things aren't where they should be. The frogs are not in the water. The frogs are in the bedrooms of the kings. The sun's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's darkened. What should be water is now blood. And as if those first nine things didn't quite get through yet, let's take the very acme of creation. Humanity. Formed on that, that, that final day of creation. The crowning gift that God gives. Life to us. And let's reverse that. Adam is the firstborn of the father. God gives him life. What happens in the tenth and final plague? The crown and gift that God gives in the book of Genesis, humanity, life, is now reversed. And the firstborn of the Pharaoh is brought to death. That's kind of the final undoing of creation that takes place in these plagues. So God, the God of Genesis 1 who makes all things, now steps into the land of Egypt and says, I am God, and now I'm about to show you that I'm God, because all these things to which you attribute divinity, I'm going to attack, I'm going to upend, and I'm going to take creation itself, and I'm going to reduce it back down to tohu bavohu, so that, that Egypt becomes Genesis 1-2, a place of formlessness and void, chaos and confusion, in need of the true God to step in and fix things. So I think when you read what's happening in those chapters of Exodus, that is kind of the theological message behind what is, what is happening there. So that all kind of sets the stage. That is, as it were, 
a pretty uh, unmissable preaching of the law, we might say. It's pretty hard to miss the fact that God is preaching law to, to these Egyptians. And then we get to kind of the, 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 the flip side of the tenth plague, and that is the Passover. Now, we, we, there's no way that we can miss the connection of Passover with the fulfillment of Passover because it wasn't by accident that all the events of Holy Week transpired during the context of Passover, right? So you certainly cannot read Exodus 12 and 13 about the Passover without keeping one eye on that text and one eye on what's happening in the Gospels because these are engaged in this dialogue one with another. And what's happening in the original Passover and then what happened in the subsequent Passovers? Well, first of all, the lamb or the young goat, it could be either one, was selected on what day of the month? Tenth day of the month. The tenth day of the month it was selected, then it was kept until the 14th. And then on the 14th, you have, you have the sacrifice. This is an unusual sacrifice. First of all, the first Passover is certainly an unusual sacrifice because there's no tabernacle, right? There's no sanctuary involved in this. It's also unusual in that you have it's really, it's the only event like this where you have all the individual families that are joining together in what begins as kind of a family or communal sacrifice. So you have the blood that, of course, is, is painted with hyssop on the door frames of, of the homes. And then the lamb itself, or the young goat, is, is roasted. And then the meat is taken inside the home, eaten, of course, with, with bitter herbs. And how are you supposed to eat it in a certain sort of way, Right? You're supposed to have your, your iPhone charged and your, uh, your suitcase packed and, and a full tank, of, full tank of gas, right? In other words, you're supposed to be ready to rock and roll. Your, your loins are supposed to be girded, to use the old King James, and staff in your hand. And This is, this is the original fast food. You're going you're gonna to eat it fast. It's got to be unleavened bread because it doesn't have, have time to, to do its usual process. So all of this is designed to be a meal that's eaten on the run. I love, I love to preach about the Lord's Supper from the context of the original Passover because of what's happening there. So they're inside their homes, they're gathered together in their families, and the meat that they eat is from the very one who, whose life was taken and whose blood now protects them so that they consume the very price of their freedom and protection. Isn't that such a beautiful picture of the Lord's Supper? We, we ingest the very one who gave his life for us, whose blood protects us. And it all begins with the Passover. So they're, they're taking into themselves the body of the sacrificial victim who protects them, whose blood now, whose blood now shields them. And of course, they have the, the bitter herbs, which are a reminder of the bitterness of their, their suffering. They consume the unleavened bread, which is, a, which is a symbol of the haste by which they're going to have, to have to depart Egypt. So that's what's happening in that original Passover. And of course, that is then repeated throughout the life of Israel. And then it finally culminates in the last Passover that ever happens. And that is during the, the ministry of Jesus. I'm not an advocate for ongoing Passovers. <laughs> That's kind of what I was hinting at there. I think celebrating the Passover today is kind of like uh, continuing to celebrate your wedding rehearsal. 
you don't celebrate your wedding rehearsal, you celebrate your marriage. The Eucharist is the marriage. The Passover was the, was, was the wedding, you know, reception. I mean, the wedding uh, rehearsal. That's, it was all kind of getting ready, getting ready for that. Well, kind of with that in mind, with the Passover in mind, think about the various ways that this filters into the New Testament. How, as, as Christians, when we're reading Exodus and thinking about the Passover, do we then hear echoes of that in the Gospels or elsewhere? Is anything that comes to mind? Nothing at all comes to mind. Okay, that's more connected with the manna, but it's in that same Exodus, same Exodus narrative. We want to talk more about that in just a second. But yeah, it's, that's definitely that's part of the whole Exodus story. But the Passover and everything connected with that in particular. Okay, Lamb of God. Lamb of God who takes away the, the sin of the world from, from John. Uh, that, of course, could have reference to other lambs that were sacrificed, but I'm thinking if you heard that as an Israelite, as a first century Jew, if you connect the lamb with anything, it's probably, it's probably going to be the Passover. And I love the way that's phrased, too. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. No, it's not, not the sin of Israel, is it? <laughs> it's the sin of, sin of the world. Yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. What's happening in Genesis 22, yeah, well, that, it, it is. Actually, uh, it's pretty fascinating, actually, to see in Jewish exegesis, they often connect what's happening in Genesis 22, the Akedah, as they call it, which means the, the binding. They connect the Akedah to, to the Passover. And one of the reasons they do that is because of the substitute, but also because of the, the firstborn the son, the special son, and of course how that figures into the sparing of the lives of the firstborn sons of the Israelites. So the Jews will often read those two in tandem, Genesis 22 and then the, the Passover. But before I forget it, that's a highly significant passage for understanding the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Because when Abraham turns around and he sees the ram caught in the thicket, he offers him in the stead of his son. And that understanding of a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, being in the stead of someone becomes the, the prism through which we can understand much of what's happening in, in Leviticus. So God set the sacrificial system up to where I don't pay for my own sins. He could have set it up otherwise. He could have arranged a system theoretically where when I sin, depending upon what the sin is, then various kinds of losses would accrue to me physically. Maybe I'm whipped, maybe I, I bleed, whatever it is, but he sets it up to where there is a substitute. We see that most clearly on the Day of Atonement, where you have the goat and the bull that are sacrificed for the entire nation of Israel. So but back to the Passover and the echoes that we hear of it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Genesis chapter 22. Where else? Oh, okay, I'm the door. Yep, sure. That's a, that's a connection that we can make with the Israelite entrance to their homes. 
Yeah. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been, has been sacrificed, which is what Paul writes in, in Corinthians. Yeah, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Think about the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah, it's a, it's a day of preparation, right? It's, everything is happening, right? Everything, these, these climactic events in the life of Jesus. He rides into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is the 10th day of the month. It's the day you select the Passover lamb. So that's the day that he rides into Jerusalem. The I'm, they're, they're certainly connected to Exodus, more particularly to Exodus chapter 3. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he, he comes in to say, I am God, and then that's precisely what Jesus is doing. He's repeatedly affirming that he is Yahweh incarnate by the I am statements. Yeah, it's really good. Come on. The scapegoat, I mean, that's, a, that's a Leviticus connection, certainly to, to, uh, to what's happening in, on, on Good Friday. Uh, it's connected to Passover in the sense that these are all part of the sacrificial liturgy, liturgy of Israel. Think of, here's, here's one that I think is significant for a couple of different reasons. Think of John's gospel as he's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay? Um, what does he say doesn't happen in the case of Jesus? That did happen in the case of the two thieves? No bones were broken. And John makes a point. Let me get my, I have my uh, reference here somewhere. It's John 19.36. He, uh, when, he, when, he, when he describes the fact that the bones were not broken, he says this. Let me get the, uh, the reference here. Talks about that. Then he says, these things came to pass that the Scripture might be fulfilled not a bone of him shall be broken. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, a sly way that John actually has a twofold reference here. Because if you look at what he's quoting, it's really from where? Anyone know? Not a bone of him shall be broken? Psalm, Psalm 34. It's a, it's a quote from Psalm 34. But, Psalm 34, this image of not having any bones broken, is also an echo of back to the Passover lamb. So Psalm 34 talks about how God sustains the righteous so not one of his bones are broken. But that itself is an echo back to the Passover. And uh, I, think we'll get, I think we'll look at this tomorrow. Uh, hopefully we'll have some time to look at the Psalms. But when you have a chance... Uh, Look at Psalm 34 in its entire context. And notice how in Psalm 34, one of the things that happens is the psalmist confesses his sins. So, if the psalm is about Jesus, not a bone of his shall be broken, and in the psalm, the psalmist confesses his sins, well then how can it be about Jesus? (laughs) I love psalms like that. What can be about Jesus, of course? What does Jesus become? What does he do? Yeah, he, 
He becomes sin, right? He, he confesses our sins. He, he takes all of our sins upon himself. And so when the psalmist is confessing sins, he's confessing ours as his own. And then the psalm goes on to talk about how when he's crucified, not one of his bones shall be broken. Anyway, that's another Passover connection. Anything else? There's more that we can look at. Yes. Yeah, the, the hyssop is, is, is an important detail. So hyssop is used there. It's used in, in a few other cleansing ceremonies in, uh, in Leviticus. But that's the first occurrence. It's a sponge-like plant. Makes good for a paintbrush. You know, anytime you need to apply blood, I encourage you to use hyssop. So you'll do that on a regular basis. Uh, so, so hyssop occurs, Passover, these various Levitical cleansings, and then, of course, you get to the crucifixion, and it's a hyssop plant that's used to, to put the sponge up to, to Jesus. So I love these, these interconnections are just, are just amazing as you, see, as you see various kinds of connections throughout Old and, Old and New Testament. Well, there's, there's much more that we, that we could take a look at. I, I just want to throw this one out at you. Because it is, uh, it's, such, it's such kind of, a, in many ways, a startling, a startling uh, uh, connection that Jude makes to what's happening. It's startling because of the way that he expresses it. So this is Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Of course, it's chapter 1. There's only one chapter. Jude, Jude, Jude verse 5. And Jude is talking about how God saved a people out of the land of Egypt, okay? So he's talking about how God saved, or somebody saved uh, a people out of the land of Egypt. But here's how he expresses it. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Now just reckon with what he just, what he just confessed. He doesn't say God, he doesn't say the Lord, he says Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. That is some radical, Christ-centered interpretation going on right there. He uses the human name of Jesus, saying that Yahweh, who brought the people out of the land of Egypt, you know who that was? It was Jesus. So on, 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 it doesn't happen on a regular basis, but on occasion, uh, I'll say something along those lines, you know, talking about how Jesus created the world, or Jesus did this, or Jesus did that, and people will sometimes have issues with that. So I always like to pull out the Jude 5 card. Oh, yeah? Well, it's right here in the Bible. <laughs> Jude said it before I said it. Yes, sir. The risk of going down the rabbit hole. Right? The NIV says there's some differences there. There are. It's been a while since I've looked at it, uh, so I can't give you many details. From what I recall, uh, there are some minority manuscripts that, that change it up. Uh, but the majority... Again, this is from memory. The majority do have Jesus there. And kind of a standard rule, as you know, a standard rule of, of textual criticism. That is, so say you're, you're putting together the, the Greek New Testament. You're a Greek scholar, and you've got a lot of different manuscripts. Okay? And these manuscripts, by and large, agree, but sometimes there's differences. Well, a standard rule when you're deciding what was in the original text is if it's, the, if it's the more difficult, challenging reading, that's probably what the original was. Because the tendency of scribes would be to take something like Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt and be like, ah, probably God. And so they'll maybe change Jesus to God. So this thing, those kinds of things happen. But that's definitely the harder reading, right? Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt? 
Yes. Right. Yeah. As one. Yes, yes. And uh, Jude isn't the only one that does that. Paul, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10, when he talks about how the Israelites were engaging in idolatry and putting Christ to the test. In fact, I'm doing that from memory, but I believe that's correct. So again, when the Israelites were worshiping Baal, Peor, whoever, who were they really putting to the test? Christ. He's the one who there was there, was there with them. I don't remember where this is at in Luther, but there's a wonderful quote from Luther where he talks about how Jesus is the one who led the Israelites to the land of Egypt. Jesus is the one who gave them the Ten Commandments at, at Mount Sinai. Jesus is the one who led them through the wilderness. And it's that what at least today seems to be kind of a radical Christ-centered hermeneutic, which would not have been radical whatsoever for most of the history of the church. It just kind of become uh, unpopular the last two, three, four centuries uh, to read the Old Testament that sort of way. Okay, that's enough about the Passover. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about kind of the next major event, and that's the, the crossing of the, the Red Sea. So what's happening? Well, first of all, let me just kind of, before we talk about it, how does this surface in the New Testament? Where do we hear language about uh, the crossing of the sea? We hear it. Yeah, we had 1 Corinthians 10 that we were just talking about in connection with idolatry. And there, the, Paul makes this bold statement. He says that our fathers were all under the cloud and, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, which is just a, a, a real fascinating way of expressing that. And then he goes on to talk about how they had their spiritual food and spiritual food and drink. Well, Paul is using Christian terminology to describe what happened to the people of Israel. Why? First of all, he begins that by saying, our fathers, right? So he wants us to understand that we are their children. We are the heirs of this, of this biblical story. So our fathers all experience this. And so why does he use baptismal language and, and this spiritual food and drink? It's covenantal language. And, I, and of course, he goes on to talk about the idolatry of the Israelites and says we're supposed to learn, learn from that. I think what Paul is doing is he's wanting us to understand the theological continuity between what happened to them and then what's happening in the church today. Do we have a spiritual food and drink, O Corinthians? Well, yeah, of course we do, right? He's about to talk about it in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Uh, do we have baptism? Well, of course we do. This isn't anything new. God has always been baptizing his people. He did it in a different way in the Red Sea. He's always been giving them spiritual food and drink. So there is a continuity between what God did in, in the old days and what he's doing now. My main point is that when Paul brings up the Red Sea, he brings it up in connection with baptism. All right? So when we're, when we're thinking about baptism, when we're teaching and preaching about baptism, then what a great place to go to the book of Exodus to talk about what baptism actually is. And when you look at the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and 15, 
you can't really look at what's happening there without also at the same time looking back at what happened at creation. Now, I know I keep going back to Genesis 1, but it just so happens to be almost the most important chapter in the Bible (laughs) because so much is compressed there. One of the things that you see at the opening of the account of creation is this reference to the deep. Now, in Hebrew, the deep is to home. And to home can be in reference simply to the deep, to the seas. But to home is often used in a personified way in the Old Testament. And it's a, it's a, it's a feminine noun, and so it, the deep can be used in this, in this personified way as kind of a, a wicked woman who's out to kill you. Let me put it that way. <laughs> it not always, it's not always used that way, but very often the deep to home is Mrs. to home who's out to get you. She becomes this personified emblem of that which is deadly, that which is trying to, to overcome the people of God. The reason I mention that is because when you get to the song at the sea in Exodus chapter 15, one of the things that's said there is that God overcame to home at the Red Sea. He overcame the deep that was, that was there. So you, there, are, there are places in the Old Testament which make some people uncomfortable. They make me excited. <laughs> Where you, you, can, you have a mythological language from the, the culture of the ancient Near East adapted and adopted into the biblical text to describe how God, what God did at creation, what God did at the, at the Red Sea. So Isaiah will talk about how he slayed the dragon or he pierced the dragon at, at the Red Sea. So it becomes kind of a, a battle motif happening at, at the Red Sea, which is a continuation really of what was going on in the 10 plagues. It was this, this battle. So the battle continues at the Red Sea, except it's just like the battle of the 10 plagues. The sea doesn't stand a chance. What's it going to do? Fight against its creator? <laughs> so, so God brings about this new creation for the Israelites. That's the way that I picture it. Because what does he do? First of all, this is where, our, this is where I wish, there are certain Hebrew words I wish had never been translated. I wish we'd have just transliterated them. I wish we'd have just transliterated, for instance, uh, chesed, the word for love, a loving kindness, uh, all these different ways that we can translate it because it's untranslatable love. I wish we'd have just transliterated that just like we did, you know, hallelujah and, and amen and, and other sorts of Hebrew words. But one that I wish we'd have transliterated is ruach because you have to make a decision every single time you come across that word. Are you going to translate it as small s spirit? It's one possibility. Capital S spirit, another possibility. Wind, breath. The problem is, every time you come across this, this word ruach, which, depending on the context, can mean any of these or sometimes even a double combination of those. But when you're translating it, you have to say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You've got to pick one of them. Now, it becomes important here because what does God send to blow all night when His people are waiting to cross? A strong east <laughs> wind. That's the way that ruach is usually translated there. But ruach can mean wind. It can also mean breath. So is it the breath of God that is sent? Is it a wind from God? It is, is it the, the Holy Spirit? 
There's a, there's, there's a texturedness to, to that word that's hard to confine into one English translation. So that wind spirit is blowing, and what was over the surface of the waters in the beginning? The Ruach, yeah. Which some translations will render as the Spirit of God was hovering I think New Revised Standard Version has the, the wind of God was there. It's, it's the Ruach. I like spirit there. But then you get to, to text like Exodus 14 and how are you going to translate it? Is it a strong east spirit? Is it a strong east wind? But the, that, that textured word then connects what's happening in Genesis with creation and then what happens in Exodus. And then when the, when the wind comes, it will, what does it do? It it blows, and all of a sudden, you have what? Division and dry land. What's happening in Genesis 1? God makes a separation. He says, we're going to have water here, and we're going to have dry land here. So all of these, are, all these creation motifs are present in the cross. Yes, sir? Would you make that sort of a rule of thumb that perhaps exploring the... Um, the, uh, the depth and the breadth of a lot of these important terms really aids in interpretation because it helps you to see connections that maybe were more obvious to a people long ago, but so much less obvious to us now. And if we kind of play with that, that pluripotency or that multi, multidimensional aspects of meaning, that we can get a lot more out of the scriptures then? Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we're all native speakers of English, or at least all of us know English. And so we're, we're aware of words that are double entendres, or sometimes even there's kind of three levels of, of meaning depending upon that. I mean, that's the whole basis of comedy, right? <laughs> we're always telling jokes because words can, can have more than, more than one meaning, or there's a surprise meaning that we, that we add. It's kind of the, you know, it's the whole basis of dad jokes, right? You can't tell dad jokes if words just have one, one meaning. And we see this in the New Testament itself, not dad jokes, I wish. But we do see uh, John, for instance, talking about how the darkness cannot do what to the light? Overcome it, but that Greek word has a, has a, has a, has a it, it's kind of a double entendre. Can't overcome it and can't comprehend it. It has both those meanings. So, and, and John, that's not the only place in John where something like that happens. So this, this multivalence to words, mm -hmm. the fact that words, thank God, have more than one meaning, applies in the Hebrew as well. Mm -hmm. And so the more that we're kind of, we just move around this word and we, and we look at it from all these various sides, the more our understanding is going to expand. And we can see that different ways that God is communicating by, by this this one word. What would be the dangers that we would look out for with, with that sort of openness? Yeah, the dangers we would look out for would be, first of all, trying to read too much into it. That's always, always a risk, right? It's, that's the kind of the, uh, the standard thing that happens a lot of times with, with people who maybe they know, you know a little bit about Greek or Hebrew. And so they, uh, they look up a word. And that word, they'll, they'll go from that to a concordance or to a dictionary. And, they'll, and so they'll look, this word can mean 10 different things. Then what they'll do is they'll try and read 10 different meanings into, into every 
instance of the word, well, that's not the way the language works. Can a word have a couple of different meanings? Yeah, yeah, but does, can it mean everything it can mean in every instance? No, and I can't, there's a technical expression for that, maybe some of you know, where, where you're, you're pouring, ev- you're trying to, to get every single possible meaning of a word every time that it occurs. That's not, that's not the way that language works. So that's one danger of that. And of course, another danger is simply to impose our, our own prejudice upon on words. You know, we, we do that all the time. I mean, that's basically social media. <laughs> this is basically the way that social media works. So what you're really saying is this. No, actually, that's not what I said at all. <laughs> but that's the accusation that often comes. Good question. Okay, uh, so back to the Red Sea and, and Genesis what I see happening at the Red Sea then, based upon these connections, thematic as well as linguistic, is that God is bringing His people from the old to the new, from a place of danger and death into a place of life and freedom. And He's doing this by engaging in an act of creation. He's demonstrating once more that He is a creator, but He's the creator who saves. He's the creator who redeems and rescues His people. Now take all of that and go to baptism. Isn't that just a perfect way, or at least a close to perfect way, to describe what God does for us in baptism? Is baptism a a rescuing, saving act? Well, of course it is. Is it also a new creational act? Yeah, of course it is. Same thing that's happening in baptism happened then at the Red Sea. So the Red Sea becomes this baptismal act of God in which He as Creator and Redeemer does both of these in the same, in the same action. So that certainly we can learn about baptism from the Gospels or from the book of Romans or from Peter, but a great place to learn about baptism is actually by turning to Genesis 1 and Exodus 14 and 15. Yes, sir. Did you have a question? Yeah. Very differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was that a baptism? Or a baptism? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, for those of you who might be listening to the recording, Pharaoh and his army understood that that quite differently. They did not understand that as as baptism whatsoever. Um, I'm really glad that you said that because that is what happens in these water acts of God. We see it happening in Exodus, but it's not the first time. If we go back to the flood narrative. So what Noah and his family understood was happening was, of course, very different the understanding of those who, all those who were outside the ark. Same thing here, what the Israelites saw happening, very different from what Pharaoh and his army saw happening. So when we talk about what is happening in baptism, either from the flood narrative or from the, the sea narrative, and connect that to the person who's being baptized, that again is instructive. Because like we said yesterday, what happens in every baptism? Well, there's always a death involved. So let us rejoice in this baptism because somebody's going to die. <laughs> so the, the, the person is co-crucified with Christ and co-buried and then co-resurrected with Jesus. A death takes place. So the, uh, the flood narrative and the Red Sea narrative also become instructive for the death that takes place. So our old Adam, our old sinful nature joins the unbelieving world outside the ark or Pharaoh and his, and his army who are at the bottom of the sea. That's that 
dual notion of judgment and salvation that are always linked together in the activity of God. All right. Uh, so, Passover, crossing the Red Sea. Let's talk about uh, what Michelle brought up. The bread from heaven, the manna. So, do you enjoy, those of you who are preachers, do you enjoy, is it, is it whatever year that is when you have like... <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like the... The, the people that design the lectionary, they're like, you know what we could use? 14 Sundays in a row on John 6. <laughs> Every time that comes up, I'm like, it's a little much, isn't it? <laughs> it's not 14 Sundays, but it is like four or five, right? It's a bunch of Sundays in a row where it's John 6. The gospel reading today is again from John 6. So after a while, you're like, you're trying to be creative. How can I preach something different on the same bread of life discourse? There you go. That's right. Pass it on to the, to the fill-in. Uh, so, uh, of course, John 6 becomes the, the New Testament chapter that connects us to, to manna. And uh, manna is... So manna is, is also part of this... How to describe it? It's like, it's like a reversal of what happened in Egypt. So, one of the things that God did in Egypt during the plagues is He. I have my references here. So, in uh, in Exodus nine eighteen through twenty three, and this is plague seven, He rained. The Hebrew there is matar. He rained down upon them hail. But when you get to the story of the manna, He rained. Matar, same Hebrew verb, he rained manna upon them. Same thing when you get to plague eight, you have locust arising, Allah, and then covering Kasah, the land. That's chapter 10. But then when you get to chapter 16, you have quail arising, Allah, and then covering Kasah, the camp. So you see what God is doing here. He's, he's, he's taking what he did as a punishment for the Egyptians. And now he's reversing that and he's giving it as a blessing to the people. So the manna and the quail together are God saying, what I did as a punishment upon Israel, I'm now going to do as a blessing upon you. The, that was plague eight. Yeah, plague eight. The reference there is uh, 10, 14, and 15. That's the locust. So the locusts arise cover the land, and then the quail arise and cover, cover the camp. And uh, I don't know if we'll get to it, but since I'm talking about this now, notice too what happens with the staff of Moses. The staff is used, of course, to do what to the water of the Nile? Turn it into blood. And in, uh, I can't remember the chapter, but God says to Moses, take the staff in your hand with which you struck the Nile, and now do what? Strike the rock and bring forth, of course, not blood, but water. So the staff, which inflicted punishment upon the Egyptians, is now giving blessing to the Israelites. So I think it's in the Wisdom of Solomon, one of the apocryphal books. They make this explicit and say something like, the very instrument by which God brought judgment is also the same instrument by which he brings life to his people. So the staff of God is a... A two-edged sword, I suppose we'd say. It's used for blessing as well as cursing. So the manna, part of what the manna is, 
is God's affirmation through these gifts to his people that what he took from the Egyptians, he's now giving to them. And this becomes, therefore, their daily bread throughout the remainder of their sojourning, which is called, of course, bread from heaven. Some of the Psalms call it the, the food of angels, so a different description of it. But then this becomes, in the bread of life discourse, of course, the way that Jesus both connects himself to Israel's past, but demonstrates through this kind of typological move the superiority of who he is. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and guess what? They all died. But if you consume me, if you consume my flesh and blood, you will live forever. So the manna in John chapter 6 then becomes part of the way that we can talk about who Jesus is, but we can also, uh, I know this has been debated by Lutherans since Lutheranism began, but my read on John 6 is we can also use that to talk about the, the Lord's Supper. Don't throw stones if you disagree. And then finally, uh, let, let's say a word about the, uh, the rock. Because this comes up also in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. How does, how, does, how does Paul describe the rock in 1 Corinthians 10? They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Oh, I just gave it away. The spiritual rock that did what? Of them. Isn't that a never kind of catch your eye? That's a strange one. Spiritual rock that followed them? Is there any account in the book of Exodus of a rock following them? No. But there was a, a fairly widespread Jewish tradition that there was a, uh, there was a rock, and it's named different things. Some, some traditions call it Miriam's well. There was a rock that actually kind of rolled along with the Israelites everywhere they went throughout the 40 years of wandering, and this became the source of water for them, Miriam's well. And because Paul uses that kind of language about the rock that followed them, I think he's probably kind of winking at that, at that tradition, saying, oh, you know about that story, that, le that legend about the rolling rock that went along with them? Well, guess who that was? Guess who the real rock was? Who took care of them? That rock was, that rock was Christ. And the image of being in the wilderness and needing drink, that I think is why you have passages like Isaiah 35 and other places in the prophets that describe the, the surprising gift of water in the wilderness. It's a pretty common theme that you see in the prophets to describe the messianic kingdom. Water where you wouldn't expect water. So what God did for the Israelites is, becomes the pattern that God is going to then fulfill in the Messianic kingdom where you have water. You have this profusion of life-giving water given to, given to the people. That's probably then also the background of what Jesus says in the Gospel of John during the Feast of Tabernacles where he talks about springs of living water that are, that are flowing from within him. So... That, actually, the, the context there is significant. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles commemorates when the Israelites were in the wilderness. And a feature of the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacle liturgy was the pouring out of water around the altar. Jesus stands up during that feast and says, basically, you see all the water and you, you heard all about the water? Well, 
the true water is going to be coming from me. It's kind of also the same John 4 language that Jesus uses talking about with the woman at the well in Samaria. I would have given you living water. All of this is traced back to what happens with the water rock in, in the wilderness. Okay. Um, let's stop there because it's a good place to stop and see if you have any comments or questions before we kind of transition into something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess we could we could ask the the question in general: What can we learn from Jewish traditions, superstitions? Yeah. And it really depends on. Well, part of it depends upon when we can date these these traditions. So that is a kind of a good question to ask and to deal with just, just briefly because it comes up quite frequently. Uh, one of the things that you'll often see, and this is rampant on social media, is you'll see, and they almost always begin this way. Ancient Jewish traditions <laughs> tell us something. Well, anytime that you come across that, pause for a second and ask yourself, uh, how ancient are we talking about? So, if, uh, first of all, some of these are just completely made up. Do you remember the Hebrew thing that was going around for a while about the name Yahweh? And it's supposed to be like when you say Yahweh, it imitates the inhalation and exhalation of breath. Did you see that on social media? Maybe some of you shared that. Yeah. Totally made up. Totally made up. No, Jew, no Jewish scholar will, no Hebrew scholar will say that's what happens when you're saying the word Yahweh. I, I never saw it, yeah. Is that the Russell Crowe one? Yeah, I never saw it. Yeah. Yeah, I never, I never watched that one, but movies, of course, are a, a, a source of this often. Another, so last Christmas, one that came up was, uh, and this was pop, probably based upon a Christmas special of The Chosen, where the shepherds would, would bind up the lambs, swaddle the lambs, and then place them in a manger. You remember seeing that? That was another popular kind of Christian meme that was going around. Completely made up. There, I, I looked. I mean, I did some research. There are absolutely no early Jewish sources to that. But people shared it because it sounds really... Wouldn't it be great if that were the case? I mean, if it, something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> so, now all that's kind of a preface to the answer. So, sometimes you'll see ancient Jewish traditions teach us or show us... Well, first of all, ask yourself how ancient. If they are from instance the Apocrypha or the Dead Sea Scrolls, those by and large are going to predate the New Testament and can certainly be a source for us understanding Jewish interpretation or Jewish culture or Jewish traditions. And so we have pretty firm footing for saying, yes, you know, we read in First uh, Maccabees or Wisdom of Solomon or whatever it might be, and we can see how that might have been, or in Philo, for instance, or Josephus. I mean, Josephus postdates the New Testament, but barely. He's the latter half of the first century. 
So when he talks, when he retells the story of the Old Testament and the antiquities of the Jews, and he includes interpretive traditions in there, it's probably a fairly safe bet that these were circulating in the first century. All right? But what the problem is, is you'll have people quoting from the Mishnah and saying, you know, Jews in Jesus' time believed this. Maybe, maybe not. The Mishnah was written down in 200, around 200 AD. So this was the writing down of oral traditions in 200 AD. So, you know, 100 and whatever, 150 plus years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then you have the Mishnah, then you have the, well, then you have the, uh, the Talmud, which is basically a commentary on the Mishnah, which comes a couple of centuries later. And very often Talmudic traditions are then used to interpret what's happening in the New Testament. You can't do that. At best, you can say, later Jewish sources record such and such. That may have been happening or believed in the first century, but we're not sure. But what you ordinarily will see is no kinds of caveats. It's just thrown out there like Jews believed such and such. It's kind of a long answer to your question, but I think it, it is important because I encounter this all the time in, in my own research, where even scholars will, uh, will play fast and loose with Jewish literature, and they'll be quoting something from the, the Talmud and trying to say this is what was believed in the first century. Yeah, that's half a millennium afterward. And so you can say all you want about the stability of oral tradition being passed down, but there's no way to prove that that's actually what was believed. A lot changes over the course of five centuries, especially when you have ongoing friction, dialogue, and debate between the Christian community and the Jewish community. Sometimes what the Jews were saying would have been a reaction to what the Christians were saying, just like sometimes what the Christians were saying was a reaction to what the Jews were saying. I mean, they are people who have friction just like we still do today. So you've got to be cautious when you're talking about ancient Jewish traditions. Okay, yes, sir. More, a lot of questions. Michelle opened up a can of worms. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so when Noah's Ark came to rest, it came to rest on the seventh and then the 17th day, which is also what we hold as the resurrection of Christ. Because it would be the... 14th of... Uh, oh, okay. No. Okay. It'd be not Nissan, and then three days later, Christ yeah. rose again. So are there other things like that in this connection between the Passover of the Old Testament and the Passover of the New Testament? Are those kinds of... Are the kind, the, kind of the chronological The chronological yeah. things also. There may be... Uh, the only thing that I can think of and, there, and I'm not saying this is it, the only thing I can think of is there's certainly, I think, a connection between the three hours of darkness and the three days of darkness in the, in the ninth plague. Because, of course, the ninth plague, three days of darkness, precedes the death of the firstborn, which, of course, is what you have subsequent to the three hours of darkness. And there may be other tie-ins that I'm just not, that I haven't seen or forgotten. Yeah, that's a good question. Yes, Debbie. Um, the stories in the Old Testament were actual history, mm -hmm. you know, like Jonah and the whale and all those. And we've talked a lot about all, all the symbolism, and you'll often hear that argument, is it just a symbolic story mm. or is it a historical document? I mean, is there anything in the Hebrew that, that you know, says this is history versus story, or how do you differentiate? 
Not really. Uh, it becomes a, really becomes a matter that's more, I guess you'd say, hermeneutical than it is actual textual. Because there's, there's no hints whatsoever in the Hebrew itself that says, you know, kind of a, through the use of certain terminology, like suggesting this is a, you know, just a parable or something like that. The, the story is told straightforward as if it's actual history. Yeah. The only time that you'll have, you know, it's always obvious when the writer wants you to understand that it's not because they'll tell a parable, for instance, or you've got the, uh, uh, what, is it, what is it that you have in the book of Judges? It's not a parable, but it's a, uh, about the trees and the brambles and asking for, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's an allegory. Well, you have, yeah, you have, you have the, the, the parable in Isaiah. Uh, anyway, it tells you a riddle. It's you have the riddle of Samson. So most of the time, if it's not intended to be portrayed as actual history, it will tell you through through some use of language. Did you have a question? Yeah. Jewish Old Testament sounds like the first word is when God created versus in the beginning. And I don't know if you said this earlier. I apologize, but no. uh, I heard in seminary that. The first words of the Bible would suggest an order, chaos, order out of chaos, like when God created the heavens and the earth. Could you, because you're, you're, and you're more generally, you're really highlighting Genesis one. Yeah. So to her point, you know, this kind of goes down the path of. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah Creation and versus other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. If you if you talk to uh, to Hebrew scholars, there's I would say. The predominant, from, from my reading, the predominant view is that should be translated when God began to create the heavens and the earth instead of an absolute in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, there's a, a very strong grammatical argument that it should be translated that way. Uh, but there is, <laughs> there's a couple of other instances where you can make a grammatical argument that the traditional translation is, is correct. And then you join to that the way the Septuagint translates it. So, which I, for me is a, is a fairly strong argument because who translated the Septuagint? Jewish scribes. I mean, they obviously knew their Hebrew. <laughs> and when they translated the Septuagint, they didn't translate it when God began to create the, the heavens and the earth. They translated that the traditional way that we have it in the beginning. Uh, I don't think, though, even if we were to translate it when God began to create the heavens and the earth, that we necessarily have to kind of, we, we don't have to exegetically buy into the idea of pre-existent matter. Uh, that, that translation does not necessitate that interpretation. It can, be, it can be translated, okay, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, then here's what he did. It doesn't mean that God had this pre-existent material to, to work with. But if you read most of Genesis commentaries, they'll, um, they will admit, if they're, if they're forthright about it, that a very strong grammatical argument can be made for, I think it's New Revised Standard Version that probably begins it, it that way, as does, I think, the Jewish Tanakh, the way they translate it. Yeah, yeah. Did, was there, oh, yes, a couple back there. Can you comment on the places where God, where it says that God hardened their heart? You know, with Pharaoh, he mm -hmm. hardened his heart. Well, of course, then, he's not going to relent. Mm -hmm. uh, that has always bothered me. It yeah, feels sure. like God is playing a game. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it bothers a lot of people, um, and, un, and un, understandably. One thing that, that I find 
interesting and helpful is that when you, when you go through the ten plagues, the, the first five, I believe it's the first five occurrences of this expression that has that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then when you get to the sixth, it switches. And it says, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So it seems to me that what's happening there is basically kind of a Romans 1 kind of situation. Romans 1 talks a lot about people, God giving people over to whatever they wanted. So they want, to, they want to run down this path of destruction. And so God basically steps out of the way and says, if that's what you want, then that's what you get. So here's Pharaoh running down the path of hardness of heart. And God steps out of the way and basically says, all right, you want a hard, you want a hard heart? I'll give you a hard heart. So that's, that's the way that I interpret that. I'm no systematician, so some of you who are more into dogmatics can explain uh, that much better than, than I can. What's that? Yeah, sure, sure. Sure. And Ferdy's great statement about that is that the only solution for the absolute God, and when you're dealing with a God hardening people's hearts, the only solution to the absolute God is the absolution you know, that is when you bump up against a God who is, you know, over all things and even can control the heart, uh, yeah. the, like, which terrorizes us, even if he's only doing it sort of maybe one or two times out of 10. Yeah. I mean, it's still a thorn in the conscience. Mm. I mean, the only way to be free of that and to feel any freedom of that is to hear that same absolute God saying, I forgive your sin. So, yeah, it's, it's it. But I don't know. Other, other than that, I think it can only be frightening. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and so understandably a frightening thing. But where do you go when, when it seems like God is against you? To God. <laughs> it's, precisely where you, it's precisely where you go. Uh, I suppose, yeah, you could, draw, you could draw a parallel between those. Even the hardness of heart and the unforgivable sin, different contexts, a little bit different, uh, different situation. And then God hardened his heart again to just finally get rid of it. So it's, <laughs> in true. a sense, it, it, yeah. it isn't talking about permanent hardening necessarily. That's true. You do have it at the 10th plague. Uh, Pharaoh says even, pray for me, correct? Yeah. So it's interesting how there's this kind of waffling back and forth on the part of, on the part of Pharaoh. Okay, a couple more questions. Um, my questions have to do with dates. Uh, first of all, do I understand correctly that Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written at least one or two centuries after Christ was crucified? No, the scholarly consensus is that they were all even... Uh, who's, the, who's the agnostic slash atheist scholar of the Gospels? Bart Ehrman. So uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, even he dates all of them within the first century, even John. So the scholarly consensus is that all of them were written. I mean, even he, like I said, he's an, he's an agnostic or an atheistic scholar of the Gospels. 
And even he will date John, which is always dated last around 90 AD. Yeah, so they were all, and that's, that's kind of the, as far as most scholars will go. There's many who will, uh, will date them decades earlier than that. And let me say this too. One reason that many scholars will date the Gospels post-70, which is when the temple was destroyed, is based not so much upon any kind of exegetical argument as a philosophical argument. And they'll say, well, since the destruction of the temple was prophesied by Jesus, but prophecy, as we all know, is an impossibility. It's kind of the assumption. Therefore, this had to be written after 70. So you see what's going on there. They're just basically fulfilling their own assumptions about how prophecy should, should work. But anyway, to answer your question, no, I don't know of any scholar, at least mainstream, who dates them one or two centuries after, after they happen. On Monday, you talked about, you, you raised the point, let's say you're a Christian in, in the Mideast, and it's 15 years after Christ has died. Okay. And your question was, well, what do you refer to? Well, you refer, the only thing you've got is the Old Testament. Yes. So there is an interim there between Christ's death and when, when the Gospels, uh, when, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John started to be written. Yeah. So how, how long would that be? Well, it depends. Uh, I'm not a gospel scholar, so you'd have to talk with them. But uh, I think maybe some of you can, who know this better can answer the question. But I think most will put it anywhere from beginning 10, 20, 30 years after. after. I mean, the problem is we don't know. Yeah, we, don't, we don't know for sure because there's no dates that are, of course, given to these. Uh, nor do we have any original manuscripts where we can maybe use those to date it. So it's based kind of upon conjecture and scholarly wrangling as to when they think this would happen. The best we can do is begin to date the epistles of Paul because we can actually date those to historical events that are described in the book of Acts or to which Paul himself refers. So would, so, it, would it be fair to say that there was a transition over decades between referring principally to the Old Testament and then starting to refer to the Gospels and the New Testament? That would be, certainly be, be fair. Yeah, at least whatever those number of years that you want to, to, to include there, 10, 20, 30, whatever, there was definitely a transitional period where for the early church, their Bible consisted exclusively of what we call the Old Testament. Then you begin to have Paul's epistles and the Gospels written. But even then, keep in mind, it's not as if you know, there was a, a, a committee of New Testament biblical texts that was established in Jerusalem, and every time something was written, they gathered it together and then emailed it out to all the congregations. <laughs> so, for instance, Luke was, Luke was writing. He had, a, he had the patron, Theophilus. He was writing. So what happened to Luke's Gospel? Well, it was probably given to one congregation who knows exactly what happened to it but the only way you're going to have copies of any of these is by hand copying them same with paul's epistles yeah they, they first paul's letter to the romans went to the church at rome or galatia churches in galatia but then what they have to do they well they can read it in some of the other churches which paul instructed some people to do so take this epistle and this letter and read it in the other churches but then they have to start making copies and those copies have to be copied. And so you, you gradually have the spreading of the biblical text, but this takes time. And I suspect, this is in no way provable, but I suspect there were, there were Christian congregations, say, around 100 A.D., that maybe they had 
a gospel. Maybe they had two gospels. Uh, maybe they had a epistle, an epistle of Paul, or maybe some of the epistles of Paul. But I doubt there were many congregations in, or any in 100 AD who had the entire New Testament text. I mean, it, it's almost, practically speaking, it's, it's almost an impossibility to imagine that. Imagine that was happening. Now, by the time you get to Irenaeus, who was a second century church father, uh, latter half of the second century, who is ministering in, uh, in Gaul, so in Lyon, modern-day modern day France, and he's writing against the Gnostics. He writes his five books against the Gnostics. And if you, if you, if you compile all of the, the biblical text to which he refers... What you see is he's quoting from basically almost every New Testament text that we have. That's by the end of the second century. So by the end of the second century, you have certainly the emergence of a canon. You certainly have him having access to all the letters of Paul and to the Gospels and whatnot. So this, I'm way outside my wheelhouse here because I'm not a New Testament scholar, not an early church scholar. But based upon what I read from around the end of the end of the first century to the end of the second century was when you have this copying and proliferation and spreading of the Christian of the New Testament manuscripts. Yeah, and then it wasn't until 325, the Council of Nicaea, that they really nailed down what was going to be, correct? Well, the canon emerges much much earlier than that. Okay. Yeah, the Council of Nicaea uh, really didn't determine the canon. It was already already pretty much established by, by then. The, the council was, con, was concerned with Christological heresies, not with the canon itself. Okay, fair yeah. enough. And just one last quick question. The Dead Sea Scrolls, what kind of date do they give those for having been written? The Dead Sea Scrolls, earliest manuscripts are around 2nd century BC, and then extending all the way to around 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Romans, when they were sweeping through Judea, they destroyed the community there at Qumran. So that was probably when the scrolls were hidden in the caves, when they saw the Romans were on the way. And so they took the scrolls and they, they hid them in the caves around there. So they extend for around 200-ish BC to around 70 AD, with, a, with most of them being dated prior to, prior to the coming of Christ. Yeah, you bet. Why don't we, uh, it's 1040, so why don't we take our break and we'll come back and we'll talk about tabernacle stuff. Fun. All right. Thank you for listening to the Mount Carmel Ministries podcast. Please join us again in the future as we continue to publish teaching from Chad Bird 